positive feedback loop. Welcome back to Positive Feedback Loop, the show where we channel all the interesting stuff in the universe and talk about it for your pleasure. As always, I'm here with co-host, Steph. Hello, everyone. And Ray. Welcome, welcome back. And I am your humble co-host, Luis. Welcome. Today, we're talking about a technology that's been growing in use, but hasn't made a lot of headlines since Google Glass. Of course, I'm talking about augmented reality, AR for short. A tech where that most people know from apps like Pokemon Go, where it allows you to somewhat seamlessly put virtual objects and information in the real world. Like, for example, seeing your Pokemon on your kitchen table. And to talk a little bit about the past, present, and possible futures of AR, we are excited to be joined by friend of the show and co-founder of AR startup Screen Door Labs, Carrie Wu. Hi, Carrie. Hello, everyone. Glad to be here. So, Carrie, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so I'm the co-founder of Screen Door Labs. We created AR Rescue, which is an augmented reality software for team communication. And the very first user case is targeting boots on the ground. So think first responders like firefighters, police officers. After a natural disaster happened, they can use the virtual data we provide them with to make real-time decisions. Cool. That sounds that sounds really exciting. So, have you had a chance to actually talk with a lot of these uh, firefighter groups and policemen and that that sort of uh, environment and see their reactions to your technology? Yeah. So we have been talking to many of them, and actually, how we started this company was when my co-founder Seth got a call from a police department saying that they need a software to share real-time drone feed. So we realized that they, they need video footage so much and not just video footage from a drone. It could be from another officers so they can always sync as a team. So how would that work technologically? Do you have a, an example of a case where someone would use that software? Yeah, so say after or during a wildfire, say here in California, um, a drone will be sent to the field and officers will be on their way there. And the drone typically will arrive before officers do, so they can actually understand what's going on and the direction of the wind, how bad the situation is before they arrive. And once one person arrives, his video footage will be shared with the whole team as well. And the commander can make comments based on that. And he can also quickly say, hey, I want commander A to see what commander B is seeing. So he will be able to help as much as possible. You mentioned seeing the feed. Yeah. So how exactly are people going to be seeing the feed? Is there like a laptop they bring with them on the field? Or how are you visualizing this working, especially in terms of like, Meant like operating it, like because you're doing several things at once, especially if you're on the field and you're worried about someone shooting you, or God forbid, you know, any other number of terrible situations. Yeah, so now we're not talking about fighting crime, it's more for um, response to emergencies, so natural disasters, for example. And officers will be wearing AR glasses, so while they see those virtual objects, we provide them with, for example, um, 2D map. 3D map with geotext of everyone in their team or video footage, they can still see the real world. So it's adding a virtual layer in between your human eyes and the reality. So are you guys actually creating the software that can analyze the 
land and analyze the plane and the people and all the things that have happened on the field and feeding it into some sort of software that allows for it to be easily digested via an augmented reality system because like let's say a drone is has it's a video it's just video is, is it like a 3d video like how do you capture that so normally a uh, drone videos will be a 2d video and we stream that it's like skype video call right you can see whatever the drone is seeing and with the drone feed we can quickly create a 3d model under seven minutes and that will be a 3D like static model where we can show the geotext of each officers. The drone mm -hmm. has like a GPS in it and it detects where it is in time and then it can that's how you create that 3D map. So the drones will have GPS trackers or uh, we can just mark it by like an officer can mark it themselves. Say he he sent the drone to this locations longitude altitude, and share share that on the map. Interesting. When I worked at MIT, I was on placed on the emergency communications committee because I was in charge of social media. And whenever okay. there was a huge emergency on campus, I was part of that communications. What do we say to the rest of campus? And everything was done on what's called a bridge, which was basically a conference call. <laughs> so uh -huh. all you could hear was everybody who, who could be on the conference call and try not to talk over each other and also communicate with a large group of people with just audio, which is really hard to do, especially if, if um, you're also dealing with people on walkie-talkies in that kind of situation okay. or a satellite phone where you can't hear as clearly as you would you know, f FaceTiming with your mom in a quiet room yeah. or something. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. I feel like one of the things that's really interesting about this too is also the being able to, as you describe, communicating when there's like a whole bunch of people and you're trying to establish where everyone is sounds really difficult. So being able to visualize where everyone else on your team is on a map really, fairly quickly seems like it'd be fairly helpful in a situation like that, especially a dangerous situation. And yeah, and... What Stephanie addressed is really um, critical um, um, because first responders, they once in a while will have some information to share, but they keep it to themselves because they are afraid that they block someone else. What if other people have even more critical information? But then you just ended up with many people have all those pieces not sync with each other. And that could give them a bigger picture of uh, what's going on, they could have changed the strategy that could have saved more lives. So the AR glasses, they have the ability to see, you know, digital things in real space, but does it also it has a camera, I imagine, so it's also recording at the same time. So you're having that multi-camera, multi-dimensional view of the affected area all at the same time and creating more high-resolution um, feed of what's really happening on the field. That's really interesting. Yeah, most um, AR glasses comes with a front-facing camera, so you don't need to like consciously know that I want to record this to record it. It's always streaming, and for the eyepiece, um, now we're targeting using a one-eye display, and when you don't need it, you can flip the whole unit, including the AR display and the camera on top, so it's not blocking your field of view. That's actually, uh, that brings me to an interesting question, at least to me, which is 
How would you decide what information is too much information? When you're on the field and you're trying to, or at least what feedback you've received on this, I would imagine that you don't want to have your entire vision blocked by like pop-up ads and things like that, right? We've all seen that dystopic version of the future, right? The Blade Runners where you're walking down the street and just all these like virtual images bombard your vision. And I'm just picturing what that the equivalent of that is in information that's actually still useful, but it's getting in the way. So how do you you and other companies like your your, your own kind of manage that line, walk the line between giving users stuff that's good and information they need versus just being way too over the top and not letting them see stuff? Yeah, that's a very good question. And that's also one of the most common asked questions from firefighters because they definitely don't want to be distracted. So what we figure is we will provide several different modules, different set of data, and some modules can be showing only really minimal data that is not going to block them at all. And when they need more information, they can switch to another module. So it's, it's the judgments will be from them as opposed to the system because um, there are some hardware limitations that if we were to make the judgment for them, there could be some failure points. So for now, we leave it to the user themselves. It's like using mobile phones, right? Like when you when there are so many different apps people can download and use, you're not challenging those software companies saying, hey, by providing so many mobile softwares, people are going to use them when they are walking on the street. Like if they get so addictive, they use that when they probably should not. That's kind of their responsibility. So we will definitely work with the users, um, educate them uh, what those modules are, how can we show the data set in different modules based on their behavior, and work with training with them. But at the end of the day, they will make the call when to use it, when to turn it off, when to switch modules. Doing a drill could help with that, where you're going through the whole scenario yourself and seeing those pop-ups and learning what volume and what type and, and whoever's in the control room as well, you know, managing everything, that, that, could, that could possibly change things. I think one of the benefits that comes to light for me is there are a lot of emergencies that come about that are very loud and sound, audio, has been traditionally the only way that first responders communicate with each other. And when you're in a situation that's very loud the audio can't get through. And so having that video and having like being able to be communicated with in a situation that's where you can't you can't use sound, I think could be an extra layer of helpfulness. <laughs> yeah. What's a typical, what's a typical like battery life on the devices in general right now? Um, so the one I display AR headset we're currently using, is actually connected to your cell phone. So the battery life will depend on your phone. It's completely powered by the cell phone. Okay. Yeah, but I agree with what uh, Stephanie was saying. Adding that new sense that we haven't used in an emergency situation could save lives. Have you had an experience or has anyone told you um, in a, like a situation where they did experience loud sounds or they couldn't fit, find somebody because they didn't have that capability that you're trying to provide? Like, did anyone say, oh, I wish I had that during this hurricane? 
So pretty much the first responders I've talked to, they haven't really pictured themselves having heads up display because they didn't know that the technology is there. So when we showed them, they like just wowed at it and some of them were even wordless. They were like, so many things could have been changed and we could have worked way more efficiently if we just see the map, see everyone's geotags. Because like the state of artists, they need to explain where they are and the world is in 3D. And especially when you're working in a remote area, it's not like, oh, I'm at the intersection of 4th Street and um, Cambridge Street. It's not that easy to describe. So when they realize that there's something called AR is not blocking your view as much, but providing you with so many data points immediately and almost constantly, they think it's really useful. That's actually really interesting. I, I think that AR is one of those technologies that's taken a long time to kind of diffuse into the popular consciousness. It's something that's been around for a while. I mean, the technology has been around since the early 90s, at least the very, very basic versions with military heads-up displays. And it's you've seen it in Google Glass, right? But we've kind of, we're kind of gotten used to it being something you put on your face, at least in our imagination, not thinking about it, the fact that like it's something you have on your phone all the time. I mean, there's a bunch of apps for your phone that do the same thing. And there's also now they're playing around with the idea of, or not playing around, but they're coming out with heads-up displays for your car where you can put it on your dashboard and your dashboard itself will like populate your your windshield with uh, just information about where you're going, your speed, all this stuff so you don't never have to look down when you're driving. And that's that's really interesting seeing that we're kind of heading more towards implementing it in ways that are not the traditional Google Glass kind of uh, vision we have for it. So do you have any ideas of kind of where you think the, interest, the, the industry is going and what you think is really interesting, what you think are some very interesting applications you see coming down the pipeline? Um, so I think eventually all the search you have to do on a daily basis will be done like through your AR glasses. So you don't need to look away, say, if you are going to search for a company's information during a business meeting, you don't have to not pay any attention to the presenter. You can do the search while still looking at that presentation, still look at that PowerPoint. You just look away for like one second and look back to that slide and you can compare the, maybe the information is different, you can compare the both and you can still make eye contact with the presenter. So it's keeping you presence much more than mobile devices. So, um, and also eventually AR and VR are going to merge with one headset, you can say, oh, today I want to watch a movie at a beach. And you turn the VR mode on, and suddenly you, you feel like you were at the beach watching a movie. You don't have to own a perfect big screen. You can watch that in VR. And after you're done with the movie, you want to like do some research online, and then you switch to the AR mode. So while you're like taking care of your housework or running some errand, you can still have that information feeding you. Right, that's like uh, what you'd call that is mixed reality, right? Both like VR and AR kind of together. And I know that Microsoft has a version of those types of um, glassware called HoloLens. Have you worked with HoloLens or tested it out? Yeah, we actually um, started our development with HoloLens. 
and we built a hardware unit to enable the GPS functions we expect officers will really need. And because Holland is kind of bulky, so we don't want to give first responders a wrong idea. We're expecting you to wear this bulky stuff. So I actually um, decided to purchase an Epson air glasses. Um, it's less bulky, but still too bulky for first responders. But at least they are not going to just shy away from it, <laughs> not talking to us. So I did a demo with that and then do more research on what will be the most ideal AR headset for first responders. And eventually we found um, 615, which is an AR headset manufacturers that already sold more than 100,000 units to the military. They provide a one-eye display AR headset. It's really durable, rugged, and we are talking to them um, to integrate our system. Wow. 100,000 units, that seems like a lot, actually. Another way to see AR is that there is one-way augmented reality and two-way augmented reality. So the older augmented reality that has existed for some time is this one way, like as simple as like superimposing some type of tattoo or background when you're in a video call or something where you can, you're, or you're, you know, Pokemon Go, this is one way AR where you see the world with some superimposed graphics. But then when you think of two-way AR, where you can actually superimpose in an, in an environment and the person on the other side also sees what you are superimposing on the environment, all of a sudden you have this two-way communication that's augmented for both parties, even if they're in different locations and contexts, which I think is a really interesting development because then you're, you're dealing with communication uh, instead of just uh, an augmenting the reality of one person. I think of another example of one-way AR is on TV programs when they're televising football games, U.S. football games, and they superimpose the first down line so that the, obviously the players are not seeing that. They know where the first down line is because they're professionals and they're playing the game. But for those who are watching, the program kind of shows through the screen that that line uh, but then you imagine well two-way AR would be something like seeing the players having headsets and seeing that line or seeing something that that you at home are also seeing that really creates a crazy extra dimension to to augmented reality and really opens up a new future for augmented reality and I think first responders is that's a great example of that because they're communicating with each other and they could possibly be seeing the same, the same thing. Yeah, that's actually, it's going to be interesting seeing where the technology goes. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that and more about the cultural impact of AR and where we might be going as a society thanks to it, or maybe despite it, uh, in the second half. So stick around and thank you again to Kerry Wu, who will continue to be here to talk about this wonderful and interesting topic. We'll be right back. Screen Door Labs created AR Rescue, an augmented reality team communication software for boots on the ground. Built for first responders, the system organizes and displays data onto AR glasses. 
first responders have access to 2D and 3D maps, as well as geotags and video feeds from drone operators and other responders. AI rescue allows first responders to work safer, respond faster, and communicate better as a team. We are learning from a wide range of firefighters. If you or someone you know is a firefighter who would be interested in talking with us and providing us with feedback on our demo, please email us at info at screendoorlabs.com. That's info at s-c-r-e-e-n-d-o-o-r-l-a-b-s.com. Or you can leave a message on our Facebook by searching Screen Door Labs. Welcome back, Piffles. Uh, at the top half, we talked a little bit about the growing industry of AR and where the technology is going. And during the commercial break, Ray mentioned that he had some questions. So, Ray, uh, what did you want to ask? Well, I was just actually curious. So, you know, thinking about the industry and multiple companies trying to get into it. We talked about Google Glass. We mentioned it briefly. But there's also a company called Magic Leap. And just like in 2015, there was a week where they filed 97 patents. They have... I think over $2 billion in investment money from like Google, Alibaba, Qualcomm. Have you, you know, what are they working on? Actually, seen, they just uh, released something. I, I know a lot of people are really skeptical what they can do today. And I am a little bit skeptical, but like their investors are not idiots either. So <laughs> I think I'll be more comfortable like making comments after I try it. They, they are a company that is really great at marketing and they just like do it. And it's kind of like Xiaomi, right? Like they, they just don't sell a lot of, they don't produce a lot of units. So people start to talk about it and they release slightly more units. So to, to get that sense of, oh, it's popular. Magic Leap is kind of like that too. Oh, like we raised so much money, we're not going to tell you what we're working on. And the first time we show the headset, we only show you how it looked like. We don't show you how it works. And then you're going to wait that for another two weeks to get the SDK. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's not the approach I prefer personally. <laughs> yeah. So we talked about different ways that we can help, you know, first responders and people in an emergency situation, but what about, in general, the interest of AR for police officers and maybe just surveillance? Yeah, so in China, uh, police officers are using it to scan license plate. So they will know, oh, this is a car that was stolen years ago, and they can check who was the car owner, and what criminals could be related to this. It's very helpful, but also some people will worry um, a lot about the sense of privacy. Like officers will basically have a God view of everything as, uh, as long as they have a front facing camera and the system maybe has some like machine learning or at least image recognition component in yeah, it. Or facial recognition. Yeah. And it's kind of scary for some people because once they have that um, air glasses, whatever it can do, um, it just it, it only requires a software update. So it can be way more powerful with one software update, with one click. Right, and it's not just the AR camera. You also have surveillance cameras that are stationary in like every uh, corner as well. So that's going to feed into 
the entire field of vision and then you'll have probably drones flying around so potentially in this in the name of safety and security we're giving away our privacy what is your company's take on privacy so how should i answer this take your time because, we'll cut it. so because it's a solution that aimed for saving people's life so we want to make sure that only officers who have enough trainings, follow the standards opto codes, have a hands of it. And they will have to log into their personal account. So whatever they do with it, there's a record. They have to be responsible for it. And, and it, it definitely is an important answer. I mean, we're, we're getting into a point where, and I mean, Ray, you allude to this, the idea of anyone that has one of these headsets doesn't have to be a police officer even. I mean, yeah, the police officer once in China may have more functionality and may be able to do way more stuff to you with that information. But just the idea of not knowing what the other person's doing behind the glasses. I mean, think about the hullabaloo that was formed a few years back when Google Glass was coming out and people talked about, oh, you can take pictures without letting the other person know you're taking pictures of them. And that became a concern because obviously... I don't want to be spied on and have the person that I'm sitting across from videotaping me without me knowing that I'm being videotaped. But that's happening all the time now anyways with smartphones. I don't think it's but that with much smartphones, of a you normally have to do – it's more noticeable, right? If you like take out your smartphone and you're recording me, obviously I know you're recording me. If you like are holding a smartphone in front of my face. Similarly, like if you put it in your purse or something like that, like you won't get a good visual. But if it's your glasses – and you have no idea what the other person's doing. I mean, they could just as easily be playing a game of tic-tac-toe as they are recording you. Well, you also have the extra layer of a hacker could overtake a system. And the person who is using, let's say, the Google Glass, they, they don't intend to take a picture. But somebody could be hacking the system or the software and be taking from a third-party point of you know through that pictures and so you're dealing with an extra layer of privacy back in the day when uh, telephones when you'd call someone up and somebody would manually pull a cord and connect the two lines it was very manual and the more automated these systems become you know this this involves AR but involves many different technologies a hacker from any distance away if they could get access could kind of bring down a whole system and so it's not just privacy concern, but I see it also as a security concern and a safety concern that if you have a digital system, somehow you can have a third party you don't even know, a hacker of sorts that gains access to whatever you're doing, whatever you're seeing, whatever is, is involved in this augmented reality experience. Yeah, I feel like everything is a trade-off, especially in the era of, like, how do you say, um, in the 21st century, everything is digital. Say, for your online credit card account, you can check all your purchases history and see if you were overcharged, and you can log in um, into your account with all the devices you have, and you can even report um, spam, a scam with one click. All those conveniences also, um, to the to another side of the coin, it also 
potentially give away your privacy. If someone hack into the bank, in the bank system, they know everything about you. They know where you go, even which specific CVS you went to, at when. It's that precise. So, yeah, I definitely see that there's always a downside of all sorts of technology. The only question is, does the value the technology provides overweight the downside? And also to uh, Louise's point earlier, um, when you record people with AR glasses, it's kind of scary, um, like scarier compared to recording people with mobile phone. Because when you hold a mobile phone, other people will kind of get a sense that you are recording something. Um, that also depends on, um, in AR headset situation, it also depends on which headset are you talking about, right? Like, if it's a HoloLens, like people will know you have the ability to record something. And for the one night display headset we're using, it's also very obvious that it comes with the front facing camera. Uh, I could be mistaken, but actually um, Google Glass, which I had assumed was dead. I had assumed Google Glass was dead and gone away and no one was talking about it anymore. It's still around. It's just specifically for companies now. There's like an enterprise edition or whatever. And I believe, uh, and we will put it in the notes if I am wrong, but I believe that they changed the feature so that now there's either a light or some sort of signal that you're recording something whenever you try to record something with Google Glass because obviously people were not happy about that. It is a very scary feature. And if, if people are going to be instantly wary of you when you wear the product, you may not want to wear the product. I actually bought a Google Glass when it first came out. They offered it to me because I had a Google Play account and a Google Music account or whatever, and you, it didn't have the red dot. It was an option to turn it off, actually. So I, But I returned it after a while. I realized I'm not a developer, and the battery here sucks, so I returned it. $1,500. Kept it for two weeks. I'd buy it again, though. <laughs> no. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> Well, I, mean, I buy it. I but. feel like four, five years later, it, it's gotten a lot better. There are also other great products out there. True. But it was sleek, you know? It was not very, like, obtrusive. And I think that's going to be part of the future is fashionable AR glasses. It's not just going to be what can it do, but how does it look? Like, if you think about smart watches, it's not just what can it do, it how does it look. It's also... A, a pretty important part of um, the experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wearables maybe not for. I've had yeah. that as a struggle. I mean, I think we we think about augmented reality from the consumer point of view because we're consumers and it's easy. I I, I find Carrie your startup really interesting because it's a, it's an enterprise startup. You're looking at these governmental and corporate organizations that really need to leverage in these sorts of scenarios that you've described and the augmented reality. What do you think about the future of AR when it comes to you know, enterprise versus consumer? I think of the computer that started off with corporate users because it was so expensive. You know, a computer filled an entire room and then now it's, it's consumers have used it. Whereas the bulk of augmented reality development is gamers, toward gamers now, and the corporate uh, use isn't as much. I believe you might be. VR. That's more VR, I would say, than AR. Yeah, Carrie. 
I'll have to find the source for this because now Goldman looking... Sachs. Oh, I think you are talking about mobile AR. Yes, mobile AR is yeah. like is pretty much um, gaming focus as well. Yeah, there's yeah, just there's... a lot of there's a lot of consumer focus in in augmented and virtual reality, uh, but the the corporate. I guess sometimes we just don't hear about it corporate as much, but it seems like it's harder to adopt AR into a corporate setting. Maybe there's not as much buy-in. What, what is your thought on that, Carrie? Why do you think? I think, well, thinking from an entrepreneur's perspective, it's kind of easy to picture like your friends and family using any like consumer products. So a lot of applications are related to people's life. And that being said, if there are some people, they really understand a specific industry or are well connected within that industry, they can create something really, really niche. And the value proposition is so clear that even though AI has it, it's kind of pricey today, they're still willing to pay for it. Right. And you can imagine that as these developers early on get started, they're going to have an advantage a competitive advantage in the future because they're already going to have the software. And as the technology gets cheaper and the hardware gets better, they're already well prepared to um, you know, deliver into the marketplace. So that's yes. kind of what you're doing now. It's like you're starting early. Sure, it's more, it's more difficult and you don't have all the tools that you would like, but you're way ahead of a lot of other people. So when the technology does develop, you'll be you know, in the lead. Yeah, um, echoing that, we are very excited to do more testing and learn um, from the data we collect, like learning from the user's behavior, because they are um, gyroscope accelerometers and AR headset. Even like how much you turn your head and how we show the objects can make you feel very comfortable. Like that's an art. That's more a design problem, but the technical... Um, data, the data set you collect can actually feed into that. Yeah, I just okay. had a few questions about the company specifically. So how big is the team currently? So currently we have three people and we also have some people who are interested in working with us, but we are like bootstrapping. We don't have a tons of resources, even though we're looking for fundraising, but we haven't get there yet. So we're keeping the relationships and also, on the other hand, talking with hardware providers and figure out how much um, do they want to integrate with our system and could there potentially be a strategic investments into the company. So it really depends on when exactly do we get more resource and then we can expand the team. So you're thinking like, you know, to have device manufacturers potentially be investors, but also are you looking at more traditional VCs? Are you looking at police or firefighter groups or municipal organizations to maybe help fund initially the the venture? I mean, I guess traditionally that'd be difficult to do for like a city to fund a startup, but. Yeah, so um, under that thought, it's probably more like grant related um, if, if the government money or competition. We want a relevant government competition is actually navigating firefighters in a VR environment with heads-up display. So a lot of our learning took over um, to that competition. And after the competition, we built even more connections with first responders, learning more from them. 
um, that was helpful. But yeah, like you said, traditionally, they're not going to invest in a startup and taking equity like traditional VCs do. And we are actually um, part of two startup programs here in LA. And these program directors, program managers are helping us to build connections with VCs and also angels. So you said you're part of these two accelerator programs, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. And the more recent one, I uh, actually read in, online that you, you um, were a part of. Tell me more about what they're offering you and how you're going to be able to work in that community to really like move faster. Because accelerator programs are really interesting for me. I think people, especially for a- new technologies like AR, is it focused on AR? Tell me more about well, that. Right, right. Could you describe what an accelerator program is before for our audience? Sure. So an accelerator program in general uh, usually, it's both a community and organization that helps startups um, get started. So let's say you have an idea or you have a small team and you want to pursue a company. So these organizations will help you find uh, not only investors, but they'll also help you find um, advisors and help you connect with potentially manufacturers or technology providers in order to really get started and, um, you know, have a you don't have to the founders and the team doesn't have to waste their time finding those partners they can use the accelerator uh, to uh, connect with the right people much more quickly well and the, and the difference between that and just any type of mentorship is that an accelerator program is, is cohort based usually and it's like a everybody starts at the same time and ends at the same time so that they can help each other in, in the, those phases rather than people coming in and out and that's true. And also you have the ability potentially to, you know, some accelerators have, it's a competition. So towards the end, you'll have a pitch competition. The winners might get uh, basically free money, uh, no attachments. Some of them mm-hmm. are more investment type where there is some sort of um, equity involved. But yeah, I'm just curious about how yours is set up. And I have to mm-hmm. say, that's just an interruption. <laughs> I have to say that Carrie is very talented and it has lots of experience with pitching all sorts of really interesting ideas. And so she's been, she's had an entrepreneurial mind for as long as I've known her. And so it's really interesting to hear about this startup, Screen Door Labs, because it's only one of many very successful, interesting ideas and projects she's been involved in. And that's why having her as a guest is is that more, much more meaningful. So that's just my little pitch for how how cool Carrie is so I'm I'm <laughs> excited to hear yeah <laughs> you're here yeah yeah just earlier I was chatting with Louise that um today I joined a presentation training at this accelerator based in LA in Santa Monica the Silicon Beach so they have this trainings once a while and it's not just about pitching it could be involved um like uh, building your financial models or go to market strategies how do you do business development and sometimes they will have um, launch with VCs so they invite investors come in telling you about their investments what um, the criterias they are looking for in startups what what sort of um, connections or communication they are expecting from you and you build that level of relationship with them. So once you're raising funds, they are there. It's not like um, 
cold calling or sending out email when the other side don't have an idea of who you are. The programs we're in, they also provide six to nine month co-working space. So like Stephanie talked about how um, entrepreneurs can chat with each other, build that relationships and introduce their own connections to each other to really build up each other's startups. That has been really beneficial for us so far. Like um, last week, another entrepreneur, she's working on a mobile payment software company specifically for refugees. And you would think it's not anywhere related to what we're doing, right? But she happened to know the CEO of an AR headset company. And that headset company, starting from only working on hardware and realizing that software is critically important to show people what AR can do. So she introduced us to him. We schedule a meeting, learn from his learning for the past two to three years. That was so insightful that without being in this accelerator program with this entrepreneur, it probably will take us way longer to, to, to get to know this person and sit down and have that conversation. That's awesome. How, you know, that's, that's the power of an accelerator is, and, and these kinds of programs is you're, like, you're put into this small space together, even if it's not a physical small space, it's some sort of... <laughs> Yeah, you know, you're putting close quarters, and and these magical connections happen. Yeah, especially I'm originally from Taiwan, and like went to school in Boston. Here in California, I don't have super strong connections like a lot of entrepreneurs do. So I feel like being an accelerator really help us, like, kind of make up that weakness. <laughs> nice. Well, Carrie, for the listeners who've been following along and are interested in following the adventures of you and your company, Screen Door Labs, where can they find you? Yeah, our official website is screendoorlabs.com and you can always check our Facebook as well. Just type in Screen Door Labs, S-C-R-E-E-N, Door, D-O-O-R, Labs, L-A-B-S. All right, that sounds great. And I'm going to be for sure following you guys along on your adventures. And... For any of you out there, I recommend checking out uh, Carrie and her and her uh, company, Screen Door Labs. And thank you for joining us, Carrie. It's been wonderful talking to you about AR and the f- the, the past, future, and present of the the market, and a little bit about entrepreneurship and making a, st- a startup. So thank you again for being here. Thank you, Piffles and, and listeners, for being with us. You can find us at pflpodcast.com. Carrie, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. We learned a lot, and uh, hopefully our listeners did as well. Thank, thank you. you again for joining us, Carrie. So thank you very much for joining us this week, and as always, stay crazy. crazy.